Let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our series in this classic, uh, what some call the Hall of Faith. We'll read beginning in verse 8 all the way through verse 22. I was tempted to skip over this a little bit, only because we've been covering it in our morning service quite often. But um, nonetheless, I think there are elements of this section on Abraham and his family that uh, we could do with a little bit of reminding. So we'll read verse 8, we'll read through verse 22. Let me um, remind you that this is not simply an ancient story, not simply an old wives' tale. It is the word of God that endures, that lasts, that does things and that is ever active in our lives. Let's therefore hear it in faith. Let's think to store it up in love. We read from the author of Hebrews, his pen, and from the pen of the Lord, these things. We're told by faith, beginning in verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Jacob, Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having reached the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, through your offspring be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Dear friends, uh, that seems the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Let's ask God's blessing upon the hearing and believing of his word. Oh, Father, we come as your children. We come from a variety of places. We come from a variety of Sundays. We come from a variety of situations, and yet we come here as your people. Speak to us now. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are opened up by your word. Heal us, make us alive, convict us, comfort us. But always, Lord, give us Christ. Give us Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
Well, the lesson of this whole chapter is, in one sense, the lesson of the book, but it's a lesson of the whole chapter, this Hall of Faith chapter. It's a very crucial lesson. I've mentioned it before, and as a way of teaching semi-well, I want to mention it again. Here's the lesson, of course. Faith is not a substance. Faith is, faith is not a commodity you buy and sell on the stock exchange. Faith is not a thing. Faith is not something you can buy in the drug dens. It's not an elixir you create in the basement. Your non-Christian buddies think that's what faith is. That's why they say, oh, man, I wish I had your faith. You have so much faith. I wish I had your kind of faith. What do they mean by that? It sounds very kind. It sounds very nice. It sounds um, they, they, they want to be very open and welcoming. But it's just like you say, I wish I had your bank account. I wish I had your smile. I wish I had your hair. I wish I had... Faith is not a substance that we deposit in the bank of our soul. It's not a thing. Rather, faith is the way we respond to a person. It's not a substance. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ and everything you do with him. It's the response of all that you are to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how you respond to the situations God puts you in. It's not a thing. It's a life. And so we're in the middle here of our uh, case studies on what that means. What does it mean to have faith? You recall from the very first uh, entry point into, into this chapter that the author of Hebrews has been concerned about a certain kind of faith, the faith that will help you persevere, the faith that will help you pass on Jesus to generations to come, the faith that will help you keep the faith. I mean, that's been his great concern in the whole book. The whole book is written to these Christians who are Jews, who have a Jewish background. They're under persecution. They've lost their building. They don't know what to do. And they're really, really tempted to go back to the old ways because they look so much better. They have the glitch. They have the glam. They have the ability. They have the ability, it seems like, to deal with guilt. They have the ability, it seems like, to put a Band-Aid over the the wounds. But they don't. They don't really. They don't really. You can put a Band-Aid over it, but it's still still a sore. The author of Hebrews has pointed out over and over again, Jesus Christ is far better than those old ways. He's better than the old way of worship. He's better than the old way of sacrifice. He's better than the old priest. He's better. And here's... The next way he's better in this chapter. He's better because of the kind of people he works with. He's better because he works with these kind of people who are not amazing in their own. They're not amazing in their own. But Jesus Christ is better because he works with these kind of people. We see this morning, this evening, particularly one person, Abraham. And how Abraham shows faith. We learn what it means tonight to exercise faith. To bring your soul, your strength, all that you are. To trust in Christ. That's why in in Luther's words, faith is not a passive thing. It's a very active, it's a very busy faith. Very busy thing. So the author picks out, starting in verse 8, this guy Abraham. 
And he shows us this Bible hero of faith. The New Testament writers always go back to Father Abraham. They say, Father Abraham, think of Paul in the book of Romans. He's justified by faith. We get a snapshot this evening of three crisis points in the life of Abraham or his family. It's interesting, we don't hear the years of walking. We don't hear of the years of ordinary trials. We hear of the crisis points. Why do you think the author talks about the crisis points? Because that's where faith is most radically seen. That's where faith is most radically deployed. That's where your faith is most clearly evident in the dire straits, in the hard seasons. Faith shines most in winter. So we get three situations that describes something about Abraham. First, we see, you have your outline there, a call and response. We see this in verses 8 to 10. We see Abraham called and Abraham responding. Look at verse 8. By faith, we see Abraham obeyed when he was called to leave. He was called to go from his pagan homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, and he leaves in obedience to God. He had no idea where he was going. God didn't give him the map. He didn't say, okay, you're going to go here and here. It's going to be X number of days. I've given you, I've gassed up the car. You're all set. No. That's scary. That's scary. I mean, imagine, for example, that your dear beloved spouse comes home or your dear beloved parent comes home and says to you, hey, we're leaving. We're moving tonight. Pack the kids, pack the car. We're getting out of here. And they ask, uh, where are we going? And you say, I have no idea, but we're leaving right now. You would say you're crazy. That's what Abraham does in a sense. How can Abraham do that? Was it his faith? Did he have some kind of super saint, special, elite, Christian Jesus, shock troop faith? Was it the level and qual- quantity of his faith? No. Don't fall in the trap of assuming that Abraham was some super saint. He had some mystical hotline to God. He was like you. And if God came to you and said, I want you to go to Iran right now. I want you to go to South America right now. How would you respond? That's the kind of question we're asking. Abraham had natural desires to be with his own people. But we're told here in verse 13 how he could actually do it. Look at verse 13. We're told here what Abraham used. It wasn't the amount of his faith. It was rather something else. Look there in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on earth. In other words, Abraham looked to his home in heaven. He could bail on his earthly home because he wasn't looking to his earthly home. He was looking to his heavenly home. We're told in this great this great statement that he looks to, verse 16, a better country that is a heavenly one. He looks to what God has prepared, a city. Verse 10, God the architect, God the builder of this city that has actual foundations. So Abraham and Sarah had this level of faith, not because they had, not because they juiced up on the faith drug, but because they were looking to their heavenly homeland. He knew as we sang, that's why I chose the hymn, of course. He knew that there were solid joys and lasting treasures. Only the children of that city, we call Zion often, that city that is to come. 
He knew his ultimate destiny. He didn't know his earthly moving spot. He didn't know he was going to go to Canaan. He didn't know all the details. But he knew he had to be where God wanted him to be on earth. There's a lesson for us in that, isn't there? The best place in your life is to be where God wants you to be. The best place to serve God is to be where God wants you to be. How do you know where God wants you to be? Look around. Unless you get a word from God like Abraham. I don't think you have. I haven't. If you do, please talk to me before you do anything about it. But for most of us, where does God want you to be? Where he's put you. Where he's placed you. Where he set you down. So we have here the call given to Abraham. We have the response shown. The response. It's amazing here because Abraham's response, verse 9, we're told, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. In other words, he was an alien. He was a resident alien. He was a stranger. He was the weirdo. He was the guy that if you had 100 people in the room, you would look to him and say, you're not like us. He was the, the, that one comic in the newspapers when you have to you know, look and see which, which of the one does not fit. He was the one you would pick out. Does not fit. Is not right. Does not look like us or talk like us or act like us. Doesn't believe like us. So Abraham, by faith, went to live. He didn't live in a palace. He lived in tents. You want to try living in tents? I camped out a couple of weeks ago. It was fun for a day. We stayed too, but it was fun for it was fun for a day. We had a good time. But um, you don't want to camp out forever, probably. I don't think. How could Abraham? How could Abraham do it? It was not because of the quality of his uh, of the quantity of his faith. It was because he was a free man. He was a free man. He was a free man. Most of us are not free men or women or boys or girls. We're not free. You and I are not free like Abraham was free. We are prisoners. We are prisoners of what we have. We are prisoners of our plans. We are prisoners of our stuff. We are prisoners of what we have in this world. You need the perspective, the radically different perspective that Abraham has. He has a heavenly mindedness. He has a perspective on heaven that set him free from the claws of this present age. Look, there's a natural desire that we have to settle down. There's a natural routine that we can get in. There's a natural comfort zone that we love to be in. Of course, some, some routines, some habits are good. It's good to brush your teeth. That's a good habit to get into. That's not what I'm talking about here, though. We have a natural desire to want everything in our life to be copacetic. If that's not a word you know, calm, easy, no problems. Isn't that how you live your life? If I can just fix this one issue, if I could just solve that one problem at work, if I could just fix my marriage in this one way, if I can just get that one kid, or if I can just get this person, one, 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 there's only one, there's only one. The Christian knows, that the distinction that Abraham has, so the Christian knows, Abraham knew, that in this life, there is no settling down. There's, no, there's, there's never a, a settling down on earth. Because the only settling down that actually settles your heart, that settles the complaints that you have, that settles the worries, the anxieties, your confusion, the chaos in this world, the only settling is found in Jesus Christ. 
The only settling down is found in the city that abides, the city that exists forever, Jesus Christ as King. Just like Abraham, you are called to believe in the middle of a hostile wilderness that you are a citizen of another country. In fact, not just another country, verse 16 says a better country. Do you believe that heaven is actually better than what you have here on earth? I mean, if all of your scheduling for this week was suddenly kaput because Christ came back tonight, would you be happy? Or there'd be a little party that said, but my plans, but my, my calendar, but, but the, the meetings, that, the, the people I was going to see, but we we're going to go to Disney World. Or whatever. I don't like Disney World. Maybe I know some of y'all do. Um, the problem is the temptation of Abraham is a temptation that we face. We want so much to be like everybody else in this world. We forget the distinctiveness of heaven. We forget the aroma of heaven. We forget the flavor of heaven. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says, look, we spread the aroma of the gospel everywhere we go. Abraham could do it. Paul could do it. And you can do it. Because it's not, it's not the amount of Abraham's faith. It's not the uniqueness of the promise that God gave to Abraham that makes him special. You have, we have the same God Abraham had. Exact same. No different. That's why if faith has grasped you like it grasped Abraham, you are a free boy. You're a free girl. You are free to be obedient to God's word. You're free to respond no matter what he says. That's why he gives a second example here. This is, I suppose, the outline tells you. Uh, an example of trust, an example of obedience. It's verses, uh, verse, verse 10, really. We're told that Abraham, as an alien, as a pilgrim, is able to trust. He's able to obey. He's able to obey and he's able to trust that God will do what he says. Notice that he's not only a stranger, but he's a foreigner. He's not only a stranger, verse 13, but he's also an exile on the earth. Not only that, he was somebody who was willing to look for a city whose Builder was God. In other words, Abraham's ability to trust God and to obey him was not just based upon God. It was based upon the promise that God had given him, the promise of an eternal city. Think about it. We've covered Abraham recently. How much of Cain and how much of the promised land did Abraham actually end up owning? The only thing he owns is a grave. That's not very uh, classy on the uh, real estate market. I don't, I don't think the grave will go for much these days. He didn't own a stitch of land in the promised land except the grave in which Sarah was buried. That did not deter him from looking to the promise of the great worldwide city that we call the New Jerusalem. And we see here in verse 13 the description 
of Abraham and Sarah and all the rest, what did they act like in their obedience? Verse 13, these all died. Here's what it means to obey God. Here's what it means to trust God. You die. This is what the calling of a Christian is. You die in faith, not having received the things promised. How many of the things that you want, you get in life? I think it was the great writer Dostoevsky who says, I don't know, I told you this before, maybe I'll tell you it again, that 99% of the things that we dream about in our mind never leave our brain. Only 1% of the dreams you have actually make it outside your head into some sort of reality in this world. We have so many dreams, so many plans, so many things that we think about that never actually make it to the real world. And then you take that 1% and you divvy it up and think about how many of the plans that make it the real world actually succeed. And you realize that when you think about it, so much of your life is apart from heaven, apart from God, unfulfilled promises. And yet these people are able to have their unfulfilled promises. They're able to have their unfulfilled lives. And they're able to, verse 13, see them and greet them from afar. They're able to see them and greet them from far off. And of course, look, these are the Old Testament people. Can't we say that as New Testament believers, as New Testament Christians, we have it good. We have Jesus Christ. We have the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Yes, we do. This is true. Yes, in many ways, we have it good. We have it much better than Abraham did. And yet, what will happen to you? You will still die. What will happen to all of us unless Christ returns? You will die. You will die in faith. You will die in faith. That's the call of a Christian. The call of a Christian. Well, this is one one British guy put it this way. We are called to an unknown country with a well-known inhabitant. We are called to an unknown country with a well-known inhabitant. What did they look to? They looked to a city, but not any random city, not any random country. Verse 16 says they looked to God's country. They look to God's city. They look to the God who built it, the God who designed it. And they were able to live by faith. They were able to obey by faith. They were able to trust by faith. That is so important, friends, as a Christian. <clears throat> One of the great challenges of the church in our day is that uh, the world is in the church. The church is like the world. The world is in our hearts, and there's no distinction at all. There's no difference at all. Do you realize how countercultural this is for you to be at church? Well, of course, on Sunday evening, but, but even more on Sunday morning. Do you realize how, how, how weird that is, how abnormal that is. And that helps you to realize that this world will not fulfill everything it promises to you. It cannot fulfill the promise of rest that God gives. Jesus Christ says, I will give you rest. Have you felt rest? Have you felt rest Sundays when you didn't go to church? You felt rest? You felt more restful or less restful? Oh, you may be able to sleep in. You may have physical rest. But has your soul felt rest? You see, friends, if as a Christian, you know 
You know where the answer lies. You know where the heavenly country, you know where the better country is. You know where the real place is. And therefore, you can minister to your friends. You can minister to your world. You can meet the needs of your neighbors. You can do all this because you know that they cannot find what Christ has to offer anywhere else. They cannot find real rest. They cannot find real hope. They cannot find life beyond the grave apart from Christ. Therefore, you're able to actually... see. This answers the common question I get when we come to something like this. All this pie in the sky, heavenly nonsense is of zero good on earth. You should really be caring more about category X, the, the, the poor, the homeless, the needy. You should really be caring more about cancer patients. You should be caring more about these kind of issues we have today. And the answer that the Bible gives and the answer that... Um, I give her are kind of one and the same. When you focus on heaven, you do not become of less relevance here. You become actually the only kind of relevant person that matters. When you're obsessed with the beauty of Jesus Christ, when you're obsessed with the truth found in him, when you are obsessed with his goodness, and that so comes into your life that you are transformed. We saw it with Jacob. We see it in our own lives. You can tell me tales of it later on. When the glory of God comes to reside in your life, you don't become of less good. You actually become the only kind of good that endures. You become somebody who can be beautiful even when you're ugly. Because let's face it, um, y'all know as well as I do that you do not get prettier with age. You just don't. You don't, generally speaking. Maybe, maybe y'all maybe do, but I don't think I will. So what can make you beautiful when you're 95 years old? Jesus Christ. Living by faith. Looking to heaven. That's what the life of faith looks like. Call and response, trust and obey. Finally, uh, faith and faithfulness. We have here not just, not just Abraham, but we have Sarah, verse 11. We have Abraham's faith in the moving van. We have Abraham's faith in the waiting room. Verse 11, we read that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, the age of childbirth. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. God had promised. God was faithful. Now we've been, we've been looking at this. We looked at this uh, the last few months. I won't, won't belabor the story. I'll just give you the flavor of it from the 17th chapter of Genesis. We're told the promise. When Abraham was 99 years old, 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 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. What did God say? The Lord appeared to him. And God said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will greatly increase your numbers. And of course, humanly speaking, zero possibility of childbirth. And every year they got older, made the promise of God more crazy, less likely to be fulfilled. But here is the faith of Sarah. Here's the faith of Sarah. She considered God faithful. Now, it's funny, of course, because the picture you get usually from the pulpits or the storybooks that go through the life of Sarah is a negative one. We covered Sarah, you know. We saw her good, we saw her bad side. It's funny here in the book of Hebrews that there's no talk about Sarah laughing. There's no talk about any kind of snarkiness. Or disbelief. There's no doubting Sarah here. And that, that shows us a, a glorious picture. This is a pure side note. 
a glorious picture of the way God views his saints. Did Sarah laugh? Yes. Was she snarky? Yes. Was she doubtful? Yes. How does God see her when all said and done? Faithful. Isn't that encouraging to you when you're snarky, when you doubt, when you laugh at God's promises, when you're tempted to be faithless, that at the end, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you can think of all the issues you've had, all the problems, all the times you've been a bad and faithless servant. But what still will Christ say? Well done, good and faithful servant. We see here that Sarah became the mother of the faithful. She received power to conceive. Her faith was the instrument by which the line of promise was continued. It would lead, of course, to Christ himself. She believed this even though biology said otherwise. There was no hope, but she looked not to some spirit, not to some ghost, not to some uh, science. She looked to the person of God. Again, faith is not shown in its level. Faith is shown in, in, in its object. She looked to God who promised, and therefore she believed. And of course, finally, we don't just see Sarah. We, don't, we see Abraham once more. Abraham, beginning in verse 17, he is tested. His faith is tested. We read that he offers up Isaac. It's the supreme moment in his life, the great test. We looked at it recently, chapter 22 of Genesis, Mount Moriah. Abraham is told, offer up your son, the one you love, the one I promised to you. It's a bit of a conundrum. And yet this text tells us, verse 19, here's Abraham's faith. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. And then the author says he, he kind of figuratively did. Metaphorically speaking, he did raise Isaac from the dead. But notice here that Abraham's faith is an intellectual faith. Abraham reasons logically through what God has said. Here's the reasoning. It's actually not that, not that tough. First, God has promised to save the world through this son, through Isaac, so your offspring be named. He's promised to use Isaac to give kids. Isaac can't have kids yet. But somehow, he's going to make kids. Second, he tells me to kill him, to sacrifice him, technically. Therefore, conclusion, major premise, my purpose conclusion, somehow Isaac, even though he die, yet he shall live. Somehow Isaac will be saved. I don't know how Abraham thought. I don't know how Abraham said, but I know that in a picture form, somehow Isaac will be raised from the dead. So what's the point of all this? The author of Hebrews is telling us this is the kind of faith that responds to the promise of God. The kind of faith that perseveres, the kind of faith that's going to get you through the crisis points like Abraham had and Sarah had, the kind of faith is not based upon whether you had a good week or a bad week as a Christian. It's not based upon the amount of faith you feel like, whether you feel uh, dry or wet, even though we never use the term wet, but whether you feel like you had a dry week or a non-dry week when it comes to being a Christian. The point of the chapter is simply that God is the same amazing God of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. 
When you have that God, you become secure. When you have that God, you're not trapped by worrying. When you have that God, you can say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. God's truth shall triumph still. You'll have poise in this life. You'll have poise. That's why we have the faithfulness of God. That's why in these last few verses, we, we get like 30 chapters of Genesis in just a couple of verses. And the point is to show that God keeps his promise through the generations. That God promised to Abraham and he kept it with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and his great-grandson Joseph. It's a sign that God is faithful over these centuries. That God was faithful to Abraham and all his offspring and therefore he'll be faithful to you. Be faithful to you. You know, if you walk through cemeteries, my wife enjoys going to cemeteries. I go with her. I, I find it to be interesting. If you walk through the cemeteries, some of the ones here in the U.S., you'll find a lot of uh, military graves. You know, if you go to the military ones, it's a sobering thing. There, You'll find the tombs, most of them end, you know, 1918, 1944, 1968, 1953, the various wars of the U.S., What's funny, of course, is that, um, not funny, what's, what's sad, I suppose, is that when you go to those graves or you go to the, the Veterans Memorial, there's one here in, in town, you go to the, the park, the Victory Park has the little memorial. <clears throat> what is it? They're always the same. It's a long list of names. I went there and I read a couple of the names. I had no idea who they are. I had no idea who they are. But their precious names, their blood secured the freedoms that we owe as Americans. That's beautiful on the country level. But to an infinitely greater degree, there's a memorial in heaven. There's a memorial in heaven. There's a book in heaven. It's full of names. Most of them you don't know. But they're all precious. They're all significant. And they're all the children of Abraham who have been faithful. And you, with all your hopes, all your dreams, all your plans, you, with all of your earthly issues this week and this day, you need to realize that the only list you need to be on is not a memorial here on earth, not a monument here on earth. The monuments of this day will fall. But there's only one list you need to be on. It's the book of life that the Lamb has. And God writes your name there. If you come to him faithfully, by faith, if you call, if you respond to his call, if you're repentance. So it doesn't matter whether places you have your name written, doesn't matter if you have a diploma, doesn't matter if you have a certificate, doesn't matter what other name, whether what other places your name's on. It doesn't matter if people say you're great or not great. It doesn't matter if you're a hero or a bum. The great issue is what we see here. To be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl of faith means you look to the God who remains faithful. And we do that this week. Let's pray. Lord, we come tonight as people called to be faithful. Those who look to the saints of old. Lord, help us not to see them as, as superhuman. More than us but help us to see them as like us, people who look to the same God that we do. We pray even if we come to your table that you would remind us, you would strengthen our faith. Not give us more of it, but give us more of Christ. 
And I pray that as we do so, we ask that you would bless these ordinary elements. You would set them aside. Set them aside. Ordinary bread, ordinary wine, you would set it aside for the use of your people. That you would make these ordinary basic things signs of your glorious grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who remain faithful to the end. Amen.